I started on that because I was just thinking about, I really want to say, I have this class and three more in, in July, and then I'm gone for five months, and just these last few months I've been thinking it really comes down to a few questions. There's really one point. And it's not that I think I won't be back after that time. It's just that uh, I wanted to make that one point. So anyway, welcome. A lot of people here have not been here before, I think, because not a lot of people do not look so familiar. So over here in this end, how many people are here for the first time we haven't met before? Would you stand up for a minute? Just a minute. This is very easy. This is the easiest test you have ever taken in your whole life. What's your name? Uh, Keon. Keon. Keon, where do you live? Uh, Berkeley. I'm glad you came. That's the test. <laughs> What's your name? Kathy. And how about you? San Francisco. And you came today for the first time. I'm glad. Sarah, San Francisco. Catherine Nicasio. Okay, Catherine. You just came across the street then. That's great. Thank you for coming. How many people here have not been here before? Okay, so come and stand up so everybody can see you. And say your name. John. John. And Tiburon and Michelle from Boston. Michelle from Boston. That you just came to visit? Yes. Oh. yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad. I'm on my way tomorrow to New York State. So anyway, I'm glad. I hope you're staying in the Bay Area for a while. Thank you for coming. Yeah. Catherine from Chicago, thank you. We have two Catherines so far. And... Bonnie from Mill Valley. Oh, I'm glad you came. Mm -hmm. And behind Bonnie? Uh, Susan from Petaluma. Susan from Petaluma. You came the back way? Yes. With, with all the baby cows? Yes. It's a very good time of year to drive that road. Hey, good morning. Uh, my name is Cheryl. Uh, I was here once before... And we didn't see this whole big, beautiful. Look at this amazing place. Yeah. I'm from Columbus, Ohio, and I came with Sky Route. You came? The Sky Route. Oh, the Sky Route. <laughs> I hope you'll stay for a while. Lori from Valley. Welcome. Hi, my name is Ellen, and I'm from Berkeley. Ellen? Jennifer, Los Angeles, and oh, thank you. Thank everybody can sit down. Over here, who do I not know? I'm Sophia, and I'm traveling from London. You, you live in London? Yes. Are you staying here for a while? Uh, I've been here for 10 days, and, and we're staying for another 10 days. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. Have a good time. Bon voyage. <laughs> wow, welcome. Wow. My my grandson has just moved out here into the valley with his wife. It's a lovely place to live. London. 
You came. <laughs> well, welcome, welcome. So now that, that's what, now our usual friend um, Brahmani and Ace is not here. Ace is not here because Ace is in uh, New York with Brahmani, and I'll meet both of them there Saturday, Friday night because we're all teaching over this weekend together. But Ace would always say, you need to stop, Sylvia, and ask everybody at this point, the new people have introduced themselves, to take one minute, minute and a half for everybody to say hello to everybody, especially to the new people, and welcome their being here, and say, come back again soon. So turn around and say hello to somebody that you don't know. So here's a story. 
So the beginning part of this class, we get to know each other a little bit. So now you got to know each other a little bit. Um, I'm very ha- One of the things that I'm very happy about is that this class is always here, except on the rare occasion that I think this year is one of them that Wednesday is, that that Christmas Day falls on a Wednesday. It otherwise is an absolutely every Wednesday there is a class here, 4th of July, anything else, uh, except Christmas Day, there's a class here. And I like it when I'm other places in the world, and uh, even when I'm down the street in Kentfield, uh, to know that there is such a place where, regardless of what situation people are in, if they're really happy and they want to share something uh, exciting, and if they're troubled about something in their life, and if they just want a group of people who they can know without interviewing them are like-minded, <laughs> this is a place to come. Uh, and uh, we, uh, we, so we rejoice with people, we, uh, we feel for people, uh, normally when we, when we, at the end of the time that we sit quietly, people mention, Susan, there's a place over here in the front, dear. And, uh, or one next to, uh, Marsha over there for your granddaughter. Uh, uh, and so we hear about people who are struggling with illnesses and saddened by death and picked up by birth and, um, also, uh, I, I want today to use, just before we even talk about those kinds of for everybody, because uh, John uh, Nam Kung is not here. He's in, um, he's in Greece, and John Nam Kung is a community member here. He comes every week that he's here. John, John is a retired special education teacher. And uh, uh, two or three years ago, I can't remember how long, a couple of years ago, he went on his own uh, to Greece to join a, a relief effort of people helping people arrive in boats. And we all knew about it. How many people knew about it at the time that John was doing that? And uh, he talked about how rewarding it was. He said he didn't much... His particular job uh, was standing in a food station, uh, ladling out bowls of hot soup, uh, for people who were in a line. He said the line never ended. The line went all the way out to the horizon and the line was happening all the time. And his soup bowl, his soup pot got replaced. And he stood and did that. And it was tremendously meaningful to him. And he wrote about it. And now, uh, a couple of months ago, he let us know that he was going back uh, to another area in Greece, which ha- houses a refugee city. Actually, because it's so, it's big enough not even to get called a camp. It's a big place for Yazidi r- uh, refugees who are safe there, um, having gotten away from where they were persecuted. And uh, he said he's a retired school teacher, and uh, one of his specialties is uh, basketball coaching. So he raised money from us and other people on a GoFundMe and uh, ordered parts for two basketball hoops and basketballs. And one of his um, one of his blogs that he sent was. Uh, 
the ba- I won't read the whole one, but it says, after numerous delays and problems, the basketball hoop I ordered a month ago from a sporting goods store in Athens finally arrived today. I immediately took it to the field to assemble it. The manual estimates that it takes two people about two hours to complete the job. It took approximately six of us, four and a half hours. First of all, it was at 95 degrees out with no shade. Sweat was dripping into our eyes, making it difficult to line up the numerous bolts and nuts. Secondly, we attracted a number of children who, as all children do, wanted to touch all the parts and play with them. We spent half the time telling them to leave everything alone. Finally, there were about 135 special pieces separate for the hoop. Manual assigned a number to each one of them. However, the parts themselves, nor the plastic bags that they came in, did not have corresponding number. So we spent half the time trying to figure out whether we were supposed to use the bolt with a hex head that was 5 sixteenths by 8, or one, another one. Finally, we completed the task, and I was the proud parent of a basketball hoop. This was the most recent one. Uh, I announced... Um, I announced at the beginning of my English class for teenagers that there would be no class on Thursday because all the staff and volunteers would be receiving training on how to take care of oneself while working with refugees. Then I started the class by asking each student how he or she was feeling that day and why. I do that every day. One girl said she's feeling sad. I asked her why. She responded, I'm sad because there's no English class on Thursday. Although I was very touched by her statement, I yelled out, yay, I don't have to teach you English for three days. Tuesdays and Wednesdays are on weekends, and laughter and giggling erupted. While I unsuccessfully tried to convince them that I meant it. Every day a few students will respond that they're feeling good because they have an English class that day. Students who are sad because the class has been canceled. Students who are happy because they get to go to class. Students who hang on to your every word. Students who respond enthusiastically and forget to raise their hand, which is a dream come true situation for a teacher. I am blessed to be able to teach these students. I also teach an English conversation class for four to five men on Sunday and Monday evenings where we just sit and converse informally about whatever topic they'd like to discuss. On Sunday, I told them I was happy about the basketball hoop that had been assembled on Saturday and many children were now playing basketball. I also shared that a lot of family members and friends had contributed money to buy the hoop and the basketballs because they cared about the Yazidis. I could tell that they were moved and grateful. I mentioned that I know they had gone through difficult times, but I was happy they were safe in in a safe place with family and community members. At some point in the discussion, I shared that we are discouraged from asking about their experiences because the memories might be too painful, at which point they all responded immediately, no, we want to share our stories with you. They were basically saying that it felt it was important for me and all those supporting my trip to Sarah's to know what happened to them. I was so moved by their willingness to open up their hearts to me that I started to cry. One of the men patted my knee, a highly unusual gesture, as Yazidi men and women do not show physical affection in public, while another said, you must be strong. The message I clearly received at that moment is we are strong because we went through. Now you must be strong for us. In other words, don't be such a wimp. (laughs) 
We were out of time, so I decided to continue the discussion on the following day. In closing, they asked me what questions I had so that they could think about their responses. I asked them to tell me what happened to them in Iraq and what their journey was like during the past five years that culminated in their arrival in the camp in Saris. I left confused and conflicted about what had just happened. We're discouraged from asking the Yazidis about their experience because of the obvious risks, but what if they voluntarily want to share? What if talking can be a part of the healing? But on the other hand, what if down the road it leads to psychological problems? After uh, all, the guiding principle of this organization that he works for is don't make anything, don't do no harm. I talked to the founder that evening and she reassured me that every staff member and volunteers faced with this dilemma. She said, if the Yazidis want to talk, first have to assure them of confidentiality and then listen and carefully steer the conversation away from potentially harmful topics. The other, the other uh, blog that uh, Marsha had but wasn't able to get... Uh, printed out was the one about how do you spell diarrhea and it came about in a, uh, uh, it's a I can tell you about the post he said they were talking about how to approach an upcoming meeting at the health center because they all went to the health center for health checkups and what this means and what that means and what, what a blood pressure cuff is and what a stethoscope is and how to say you know, it hurts me here or it hurts me there or it hurts me somewhere and uh, to report if you have diarrhea. So they wanted to know, what is diarrhea? And uh, John has a very funny line in which he said, I was obligated to pantomime, more or less, what exactly diarrhea is. (laughs) So it was a very funny experience. But I I think I'm so moved by his... He's a very... very, Quiet presence when he's here, but uh, anyway, I, I respond. Do you respond to the blogs? Who else is getting the blogs? Marsha gets them. Do you respond? I do too. Would you would you mention that we read his blogs in class and that people were moved? Is it fair to say people were moved? People were moved. So I wanted to do that just to bring John's presence in here. Then I wanted to say one thing, and then we'll and then we'll sit. I had said earlier that the more I think about it, you say the same stories, the same little anecdotes, the same legends over and over again, and all of a sudden they have a much deeper meaning. I understood one more deeply this morning uh, because of two things. Um, First of all, I had an uh, I had an email from my friend Susan Felix who just came. It's her granddaughter who uh, drove her here. Susan hasn't been able to come so much because she lives in Berkeley and the drive is hard for her. But way back in the way beginning, Susan was here quite a lot of the time. And Susan wrote an email this morning to say that her uh, younger brother, her 68-year-old younger brother, Alan, Adam, Adam died quite suddenly last uh, weekend, Friday night of a heart attack, and uh, that there weren't there wasn't a formal uh, for whatever reason there wasn't a formal ceremony or a memorial or a 
burial for him or the traditional mourning period that Jews often do for eight days where people visit. And so she said she wanted to come here and we would be her community for the morning. So I said I would mention him before we started. He was a physician. Tell, why, why don't you say one minute worth about your brother? Can you? One minute. Okay, well, he was... You got a, you got a thing. Okay, so um, my brother was a physician and he was very proud of the fact that he worked for rock medicine. He, took, he was the physician to the stars. He was the physician at Burning Man. He, he, these were things he was very... But he was also like... People have posted things on Facebook. Um, he's touched many, many people's lives. He was a very, very... He, well, I, I mean, you can say this about almost anybody, but he was an exceptionally good person. And he had a fabulous sense of humor that he brought to everything. And he was very creative. He really, he really wanted to be an artist. And I should tell the story that he played with his high school friends. He was in a band with a band that became Steely Dan. And my parents said, you can't be a musician. You know, you, you've got to be a doctor. And, you know, <laughs> this is the path to, rock, to rich and famous. And he's always had tremendous regrets that he gave up his band. But anyway... Um, he was he was a and he was a great brother. He came to Berkeley when he was seventeen, and I had moved there already. And um, and and I mean, we were the closest of friends. But I was also uh, sort of, I mean a, a sister and a mother and all those things. And I'm going to miss him very much. Going to miss him very much. I uh, seven years ago, as you know, my husband passed, but he had been sick and he was suffering, and he was ready to go. But you know, we have and and that when I had a lot of acceptance around that. But um, there were also people that haven't lived their lives and haven't, I mean, were very healthy the day, you know, healthy the day before. And um, that's a hard one to accept. But um, it's, it's going to happen to all of us, so we might as well get used to it. Yeah, and, and thank you, Sylvia, for letting me say these words. Oh, thank you for coming, you know. Is it seven years since Morton died? It doesn't seem like seven years. Seven years. Seven yeah. years. Yeah. And and I, I bless my granddaughter for driving me here because and that there was a tra- out, out, there was an accident on the bridge so it was like the worst drive possible. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm also impressed that he was the physician for Burning Man. That's a big deal. Yeah, <laughs> he was like he went way up in my estimate. <laughs> no, he did, and he he made. Um, he always made the origami. I made origami things out of out of dollars. He, I, I mean that he there was the artist in him never really totally left, but uh, it never really got the full expression. And and let me just say this to everybody who yearns to be an artist. I mean, I am so lucky that I've been able to do it. But you know, sometimes people try to put that stuff away, and you've got to really let it blossom. Let it all blossom. So okay, do you want to? Can I assess my? Do you want to say something, sweetheart? I'm okay. Thank you. Thank you for mentioning and remembering him with us. But that's all I got to say. Okay. Thank well, you. And I'm thanking you also because I thank you very much for in, picking us all up. I mean, it's never a pick up to hear that somebody died, but to hear that they had that kind of a life. Steely Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Burning Man. (laughs) And I can just hear your parents saying you can't be a rock star. (laughs) You have to be a doctor. (laughs) 
<laughs> there was a certain generation of yeah. Jewish parents who said that. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you for coming. And uh, in a sense, every single moment of our practice is dedicated to the well-being of all beings, uh, primarily our own heart, which then manifests with all beings. But we can do it today in the name of uh, Alan Duhan. Adam, Adam, I keep seeing that, Adam Duhan, and the Grateful Dead, and Steely Dan, and all of those people. And everybody else who is missing someone, or on the verge of missing someone. There's one other thing I wanted to say, he had a group of friends that were definitely baby boomers, and he was the the first one in that group to go, and it's a real shock to them, it's a real shock, And, and this is the next generation coming up. We said that I, that I was saying earlier this morning that the the the, um, the quintessential thing that the the, the Buddha said that this remains his main teaching is that everything is impermanent. And I had quoted somebody whose name just for this morning has left me, uh, who was a writer in the mid last century, who said, "I always knew everybody died, but I just didn't think it was going to happen to me." And we all operate more or less that way. We get up in the morning and unless we've had a diagnosis of something new the day before, we're not thinking about that. We're thinking about what are we going to do this weekend and what are we going to do for Labor Day and where are we going to go on our winter vacation and what are we going to do as if everything is permanent because you have to live that way. Otherwise, who would do anything? But to, to be wakened up to and everything is... Um, what's the word? Not transient. That, that's how it's translated. Everything is coincidental. Everything is contingent. That's what I'm thinking about. Everything is contingent on everything else. Mostly when I read uh, accounts of people who suddenly have some breakthrough vision of what's true and what's amazing about life is first of all that it's happening and that it's happening to everybody at the same time and that what's happening to anybody is affecting what's happening to everybody else and that everybody is appearing as they're appearing right now contingent on anything else. All the things that we say that sound like nice like sayings like it's all one or we are one we really are. We really are the beginnings of the baby boomers passing, or the ends of the this, or the ends of the that, or the beginnings. And how to be able to say, I know that. And for this time that I'm here, let me devote myself to the well-being of all beings. Not, not because I have to, but because I want to, and because it is the biggest guarantee of personal well-being. Oh, good. That was, I wrote, I wrote, I wrote, uh, I wrote the name of the talk this morning uh, before I started, (laughs) hoping it would come out that way. (laughs) And I called it the ultimate protection mantra. So I want to say that the ultimate protection mantra is may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. And uh, well, I'll tell it to you now. The the way I was thinking about it is, um, uh, for some reason, I was talking about Mahago Sananda with my friend Sheila Weinberg, 
And Magosananda recently died, well, recently in the last 10 years, Magosananda died. He was quite old. He had been the senior prelate, in, Buddhist prelate in Cambodia. Uh, he was aged enough to um, not be... Um, not be in the middle of Dharma discussions anymore, although he was a tremendous scholar in his time and spoke many languages. And um, I met him in uh, a, a teacher's conference in uh, Dharamsala in oh, 2005, I think it was. And um, my friend Sheila had met him in uh, 1995, on the 50th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. And Magosananda had been very active on an international scale for um, uh, making worldwide peace and specifically for getting bans on uh, uh, landmines. He was a very tremendous peace activist in the world. And clergy of all different denominations came to Auschwitz 50 years after the 40, 1945 liberation of Auschwitz. And they had a ceremony in which they opened the doors of the now, of course, just a landmark um, camp. And all these people, my, my friend Sheila among them, and Mahagosananda among them, and a lot of other clergy, walked out symbolically walking out of Auschwitz into freedom. And that freedom march continued in some form all the way to Hiroshima where it came on the 5th or the 6th of August. I'm not sure of which day it is that the uh, United States dropped a nuclear weapon on that Japanese city. And that's the end of the, that was the end of that march. And uh, Mahagosananda did not march all the way across half the earth, but he was there in the beginning of it and he was there in the end of it. And people were constantly joining and leaving all the way along so you could do a piece. It was like a camino. It was like a pilgrimage trail. So it went from one end to the other. And Sheila said, oh, and I told Sheila I was impressed with him. I met him in Delhi and in Dharamsala. And she said, yes, I, I met him and uh, he was there at that march. She said, but you know, he didn't, uh, not saying bad on him, of course, she said, but he didn't say very much. All he said was, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. <laughs> Seemed like that was the only thing that he said. But not in a bad way, but you know, that he didn't say anything monumental. And I, then we, we both recognized that he's a wonderful leader, etc., etc., it's a wonderful, quaint thing to say. And, it's, and I was realizing, as I was putting together this talk this week, it's not quaint at all. It's absolutely the fundamental, profoundest thing that we can say, recognizing the fact that everybody suffers. To have been born means we're going to be subject to age and loss and missing what we used to have. That uh, when the Buddha, in the classical stories of the Buddha, he grows up uh, protected from all signs of loss. In, in these are legends, these are fairy tales, so you have to say, because otherwise you see that grass dies or flowers wither. But presumably, in the story, it said he never knew that anything died. So it means that he really had not woken up to the existential truth of everything dies and 
it's a it's a myth anyway. But in that myth, um, which I've told I don't know how many hundreds, maybe a thousand times, but he goes from being a protected child and adolescent to a married man with a child, and then in, in one of a couple of variations, he gets out of his magical kingdom. And uh, he sees in the street an old person and then a sick person and then a dead person all bloated by the side of the road and then a monk walking across quietly, serene of visage. And uh, I've told that story so many times, putting the emphasis on, so that was his moment of... uh, existential awareness is a moment of the beginning of existential angst uh oh you know this, this we don't get out of this life uh, one way or another we start we have a beautiful baby with all these beautiful little parts and then in the best of circumstances it grows it ages and eventually it dies and it's lost to everyone who cared about it and I haven't thought about, and that he then goes off and becomes a monk like this monk and I've told the story always making, sort of slanting it to the Buddha thought, uh-oh, this is true. I have to figure out what to do about it. I'll become a monk. And I have not put enough emphasis, I think, on the detail of the story, which is serene of visage. The monk went by, serene of visage. He didn't just see a monk and think, uh huh that's another thing to be, I'll have to be a monk and see if I can figure this out. But it has in it, it's got the seed of the end of it. What makes it possible to be able to be serene in your mind, fully aware of the transient nature of life experience? And I really want to say that so that he goes off and then he studies with this teacher and that teacher and then he sits down under the Bodhi tree. It's truly a mythical story with all the mythical parts of it attendant, which I'll tell you again. But what I was thinking about is that the story doesn't add to a conclusion, leads to a conclusion in a kind of a linguistic way. But the story is the conclusion. It is the, the medium is the message. The monk has already told him the end of the story, which is it is possible to live fully aware of old age, sickness and death and loss and be all right about it. What's required is, is two things. I think what's required is, first of all, the uh, in, immovable knowledge, wisdom, that these that this is how life is. This is not a mistake. This is what happens uh, to everyone. You don't lose that knowledge. Sometimes you have such a feeling of um, this shouldn't have happened with sickness or death at any age. shouldn't have happened. It did happen. And to say life comes with loss. And the other is that what mitigates loss doesn't make it not be there, is compassionate connection to other people while they're dying or who are bereaved along with us. You look at a room full of people and you see all these people, but all these people vulnerable like I am to loss. We are in a community. We're in a team of people in the middle of life, but all of us equally vulnerable 
something might happen and it's so touching that we don't we, we say well we are but hey I'm living my life while I'm doing it and it's so um, uplifting to me to think about people do it for the very most part people not only do it they want more of it and not only aware that you fall in love you're taking a big risk because you might be hurt but we're all out there reading the 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 uh, the sites, <laughs> I, reading the the the, uh, ma- the relationship sites that are appropriate to who you are and how old you are, and what uh, what uh, what your criteria is. There are sites for social activists. I heard a great name for a site yesterday. I mean, I mean, really seriously, I'm not teasing about this. It's a site for um, very traditional Jews who really don't want to meet people who are not ritually observant. And the name of the site is we were together at Sinai.com. So, because the, the story that goes along is the 600,000 Israelites that were there it's a mythical time of the uh, revelation of the commandments to Moses. Are all our the are all gave way to every Jew that's been in existence since then. So it's a good name for a website. You're on my team. We were together at Sinai. So, <laughs> but you can find, you know we marched together. We could I, I could certainly join a go on a blog that said. Uh, <laughs> we all walked in the 1970s on Barkett Street and got photographed by the FBI and the CIA. There are a lot of people on that blog. I probably shouldn't have said that on the... <laughs> oh, that's all right. That would be a good sifting thing. I think we just keep telling the same stories over and over and over again, and then we get it. A little bit more. Do you not discover that? I think I, I think. Oh, I used to know that. I knew that, but now I really know that. This morning, I really know that story about the Buddha went forth. Huh? Okay. <laughs> now we'll sit. So our normal way is we sit for about twenty minutes. At some point, we'll sit now. How about we use that? We'll use that. Uh, framework of uh, serene of visage I like that it means uh, it means wisely carrying on I, I like the uh, there's been a uh, a, uh, a uh, what do you call it? renaissance reusing of the British uh, World War II um, legend, uh, keep calm and carry on. I don't want to say keep calm and carry on. I'd like to say keep wise and carry on. Uh, Keep wise and carry on. Stay wise and carry on. Because the next moment is already arriving. Let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of the mind and body and then just stay that way
That was my favorite instruction from Ajahn Amaro. Let the mind and body assume its natural peace and ease, which reminds the mind that it has a natural peace and ease. Not asleep, contented, alert, interested, curious. It really means not having a problem with this moment. Breath comes in and out. Thoughts arise and pass away. Sounds come and go. Feelings in your body come and go. Serene of visage, not having a problem with the situation. Moment to moment, it's the equivalent of, may I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend. And I'll be quiet for a while so you can meet each moment fully and as a friend, serene of heart and visage and body. Anything that arises to disturb that natural peace and ease, just notice it with loving curiosity it'll probably disappear.
we have the habit of spending the last several moments, minutes of our sitting together for being um, an open shared space for people to mention anyone who's on their mind, who's come up while they're sitting, who's in some special situation in their life so that your thoughts are with them and ours could be with them as well. I'm uh, thinking particularly about my uh, eldest, uh, my eldest son, Michael, who is in Zambia uh, doing an AIDS ride, on, uh, which he's done the AIDS ride in San Francisco for 10 years and is now doing an AIDS ride in Zambia for education and prevention of AIDS fundraising on uh, unpaved roads largely um, and with uh, African wildlife around. So um, the ride is just starting, I think, tomorrow, but he's there. So I'm thinking about him a lot this week, and I hope you will too. What are you thinking about? I'm thinking about Susan and her granddaughter and wishing her peace and ease and freedom from suffering in the days ahead with her loss of her dear brother, Adam. Zach and Rebecca 
as Zach I've known since he was born, is now in his 30s, and they just entered their, had their first baby last night, little boy, Santa. I'm thinking of my mom, who is here, and her partner, who is here for the first time, and their glorious, adventurous spirit to try new things, and John's quote that I'm too old not to try new things. <laughs> and I think that's a perfect offering for our time. I am thinking of my son, a young man who's homeless. Also thinking about my dad's sister, who's just a little bit older than me, who is in hospice. of my mother who died 33 years ago, remembering her beautiful, huge, incredible spirit that lives within me.
teacher, my friend, is really dealing with some heavy drug abuse right now. Um, and he's really damaging a lot of relationships. Sharing the space together of um, acknowledging how dear people are to us and how much their pain pains us and how much their blessings or their triumphs or their celebrations touch us. in recognition of the fact that the whole world is made up of people caring about other people everybody trying to be as well as they can be everybody getting lost getting used to loss as well as they can everyone celebrating joys as fully as they can. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. It often happens to me that I, you know, I, I'm sure to you as well, that I sit here in the shared space of everyone sensing everybody else, the people who speak and the people who don't speak. Everyone in their mind has someone that they're thinking about, or ones that we're thinking about and caring about. 
because that's the nature of being a human being and, uh, and how much it it's clear to me and I'm sure to you that it doesn't matter that I don't know the people in particular that everybody mentions and just their situations that situations that happen to people and I think that I think that the temperature in the room gets different and the climate in the room gets different don't you feel it like I can't think of a single thing that I could say that could be a more potent dharma talk than the last 10 minutes people care about the name of the dharma talk would be people care about other people and everyone is vulnerable period that's it and we carry on anyway and we're touched that's one of the amazing things about human beings and every once in a while when we hear what's a piece of recognizable joy you feel like whoa your heart picks up a little bit Does did you actually say that it was a 10 pound baby and just at the end a 10 pound baby is an enormous baby it came out in a regular way well you know life is amazing (laughs) she's a big girl right You know, life, you know, you, so life is amazing. Everything happens. And it's amazing enough just what's happening. And the Buddha's insight, where he, uh, uh, particularly that first noble truth about life comes with uh, pain and um, difficulty. It doesn't say the whole life is pain and difficulty. It says it comes with it. It sometimes, uh, as it made its way over into the West and was translated awkwardly as life is dukkha, suffering, and people generally said, uh, you know, what a, what a depressing religion. You know, that, that <laughs> life is suffering. Not, you know, not that there aren't wonderful, awesome, amazing joyful, desirable, hope for things that don't happen. It's amazing. Uh, (laughs) Roger Federer, 37 years old, just won on a clay court. I mean, there are amazing and wonderful and terrific things and beautiful things and 10-pound babies and um, all kinds of amazing things. And in the middle of it, that was one of the things that seems to me Maybe it shouldn't be so amazing. Is so uh, like uh, so hiding in full view. Is it could just be what it is, disappointing and often painful and sometimes very sad when we lose things that are dear to us. But it's so fragile and so vulnerable. Why would we make it worse by adding to it? I think that my friends um, Tony Bernhard and uh, Cliff. Saren was here teaching with me a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about other ways to express the Buddha's four insights about how what's true about life and um, the four noble truths 
And I think it was Tony who said we could we could really bring it down to one noble truth, and that truth will be: don't make it worse. Don't make it worse. It's what it is. It's a mixed. You know, everything happens to everybody. Sooner or later, in this room, every single person has experienced some loss. Maybe a big loss. Maybe. And sometimes, you know, when people people die in the fullness of time. And that's that's fine. We say this is a life, full life, well lived. Not everybody gets to do that. Not so many people get to do that. But nevertheless, we miss them. Because however much it was the fullness and the right time and all of that, you can't phone them up the next day. You can't have a conversation with them the next day. So it's a lot of losses that we are continually accommodating to. But it's also amazing discoveries that we are continually awesome about. And to be able to have a mind that's um, liberated enough from confusion to be able to really feel the losses keenly and appreciate how much we have loved and celebrate the, the, all the different varieties of 10-pound healthy babies, all the things that happen that are amazing and wonderful. without making it worse with habits of that cause confusion. And really what the Buddha taught is about the habits that cause confusion and how to change the habits. I was thinking this morning, it was another thing that I discovered this morning, just thinking that I like to say about uh, the whole point of practice for me is about the transformation of the habits of my mind from contention to compassion. No, no, this isn't happening. I don't want to know that it's happening. Don't tell me it's happening. Don't let me know about that. I hate that. Bring it, take it away. Oh, I need that. To calm down my mind from the impulsive, instinctive responses that it maladaptively have and really change my mind so it was just unremittingly sweet, unremittingly kind, not because it had lost its its uh, energy and gives up, but because it's gotten its energy and it's wakened up, that that story about what are you if you're not if you're not a god and not an ordinary man? I'm awake. Maybe that has to be the main story. What's it mean to wake up? I love telling groups of people that I had a friend no longer living who told the story that his three-year-old child said to him, Daddy, you know, you get up in the morning, you've been sleeping, and then you're awake. And he said, yes. And she said, when you're awake, once you're awake, can, can you wake more up than up? And that maybe, that's the, 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 that's maybe the main question. Can you wake more up than up? Because I think that you can, and that's what the Buddha said. And I think that what we practice is, this is the practice of continually trying to wake up more. Um, five or six years ago, my, my husband, I, I tell this story and it just popped into my mind again. Some of you have heard it. My husband took terribly ill. We were living in France at the time. He took terribly ill. He very nearly died. And then he didn't. And after some very serious time in intensive care, weeks actually, in intensive care and in a coma, they discovered what was the matter with him. It's all fixed. 
and at 87 he's fine. Uh, and during that time that I sat with him a lot, you know, all day, waiting to see if it was going one way or the other way, I was alternating writing his obituary, his, his eulogy, and uh, telling him, get better, you have to get better, try to get better, and hoping he would. I didn't know it was going to be A or B, and I did know it was out of my hands. So I, I, I wasn't too agitated about it, I was just waiting. And then he got better. And while I was waiting and writing the eulogy or praying for him, I would think to myself, you know, if he gets better, I will never again be annoyed at all these little habits that he has. <laughs> Who doesn't have little personal habits? Anybody here lives with another partner? Yeah. Partner have personal habits that are annoying? During which time I said, if he gets well, if he lives, those personal habits, those are nothing. I mean, the only, the only thing that makes any sense to think about is he alive or dead. And the only thing that matters is he should live, may he thrive. So he lived. And for a little while, the personal habits <laughs> didn't bother me at all because I had like my, my, my mind was screwed on straight. And then after a while, the mind gets unscrewed from straight. And they do the personal habits, and you think, ah, how could I be living with a man that has a habit like that? I know that you're all laughing, not at me, but with me, because you have that same thing. You say, how could I be living? Which you just have to think about. It's a crazy thing to think to yourself, how could I be living with a person? If you've already lived with them 60 years, there must have been some way that you could have lived with them. So the whole question, how could I have lived with them? Is, but the mind is crazy, and it makes, it makes stories like that. And you think to yourself, what are we doing? But you know what's different afterwards? The mind thinks the story and you get ready to say, hey, I told you 50,000 times I don't like that. And you don't say it. And you dodge a bullet. You don't mess up the afternoon for you or them because you realize it could be otherwise. That's really what happens. We get a little wiser and the habits change. I think the biggest thing about... A funny thing. I, sometimes I'm halfway through a sentence, and I have another uh, another image comes in my mind. Uh, my old dog that just died at 18 or some impossibly very old age was um, picked up um, as a stray on the streets of Oakland 16 years ago, and when we got him from a rescue, and. Um, he must have been living you know, on his own for a while because he looked awful. He was very scraggly and we had to take him to the vet and get him cleaned up and tidied up and checked out and he was okay. Except he was very, very skittish. He's a, he's a, he was a Bichon Terrier. You could see because he had Terrier ears and a Terrier short fuse. <laughs> and I used, to tell that, I used to tell people that the Bichon part of him was the part that sat on my lap once he got used to me for the rest of my life. I had a Bichon in the lap. And the other part of him was the part that when he was getting annoyed at something, he could, he'd be sitting on the lap and all of a sudden he'd start... And you could hear a growl coming up from him. 
And I would use him to explain the fact that my mind, my mind, most of the time is uh, prepared to sit on lap, so to speak. It's friendly and nice and pleasant and whatever. And if something starts to annoy me, my mind starts to growl and you can hear it. And it's about to bark. But what it had trained itself, at least in the case of my uh, old husband, is it doesn't bark. It just thinks it. And the bark passes. And then I feel, what a relief. We don't have to go through a whole messed up afternoon while everybody recovers from having spoken stupidly and having to hear uh, verbal abuse. You don't need it. So I think the mind changes slowly. Just as the dog, when we took him home in the very beginning, 16 years ago, if he was sleeping and you went to pat him, he'd snap at you and bite. You'd have to say, you I'm now approaching you, wake up. And now he's, and he spent the rest of his life. When he calmed down, he changed his habits and he stopped the snapping and sat on the lap. I think we can calm down our mind so it stops snapping. What it is, in, in the, I have to tell you that in fan, I don't have to, I am choosing in order to keep my credibility up to <laughs> tell you how that works from the point of view of Buddhist neuroscience, <laughs> lest it be too banal. But here's what, here's what the Buddha said. Things happen and the mind recognizes, the mind is startled by that. We're going along and uh, things happen. Oh, here's a, you're walking along a street and the smell of pizza wafts in a crowd and the smell of pizza wafts into your nose, nostrils. And it's a good smell. And the next thing you know, you're continuing walking down the street but eating a piece of pizza which you stepped in and bought. Then you think, why am I eating this pizza? I'm going to a lunch meeting. <laughs> but so that clearly, that's you're probably not going to do that. But you know, but it's a, it's an exaggeration of something happens. I saw um, Carmen at the opera last week. Who saw Carmen? The current Carmen. Isn't it terrible? <laughs> I mean, it was wonderful. The, the soprano was out of this world. Fantastic singing. But here is Don Jose. He's behaving himself. He's got a perfectly lovely uh, girlfriend. He's got a mother at home praying for him every minute. And here, co- and here comes Carmen, who behaves seductively. And he gets entranced by it. And he throws up his entire life. Leaves the girlfriend, leaves the army, leaves everything. Did you feel bad for him? <laughs> I thought to myself, uh, you know, it, it's such a good example of so the pizza wafts out the window. Uh, in the story of the Buddha, here's the legendary story. This is a fantastic story that I understand now better than the last time I told it. So even if you've heard me tell it a hundred times, I get it now better. They say in the stories that the Buddha, having left his family and being on the search for how do you live in a life? Essentially, how do I cure existential angst? What should you do about the fact that having been born, there's no way out but forward? And you are going to die and lose your whole life and your whole background. And before that, if you're lucky and get old, you'll lose your vitality. (laughs) I told... I. I, (laughs) 
I think I may have told this group, but in the last couple of weeks I discovered I can't hop. So people say to me, well, what do you have to hop about? You know, they have to hop. I said, no, but I used to be able to hop. Uh, and now I can jump, a little jump, one jump, but I can't hop. I used to be able to hop. That's not a bad thing, you know, you don't have to hop. But it's just one of those things that you notice slip by, and you used to be able to do that, and then you can't, slowly but surely. I, who used to be able to hop, now walks down the stairway holding a stair rail, while some adolescent comes down five steps at a time right next to me, boom, 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 down. I say, whoa, look at that. This, it's just the way it is. It's not tragic. It's just the way it is. But to notice, things keep changing, things keep changing. And you lose agility, you lose, you lose the possibility of saying, well, ten years from now, or I'll take up a musical lesson, instrument, not play it ten years from now. So the future gets short and the back gets long. But how do we stay vigorous and uh, excited about life and still going to peace marches and still going to rallies and doing what you're going to, and loving, uh, teaching about loving and loving as best you can, except we keep on learning. And you keep on changing the habits of the mind. I'm not finished with my habits. I'm better, but I'm not finished with them. Uh, when, when I laughed before and I said, people said, you know, what was your intention? Take up mindfulness, you become kind. I said, I'm kind enough. But I became kinder. And I'm becoming kinder. I don't make things worse when I don't have to. I do not. <laughs> Finally, offer gratuitous advice to my children and grandchildren. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> Just in time to discover that even if they ask me for the advice, mostly I don't know, you know. That, but I could make things worse by offering. Don't make things worse. It's the, the situation in the world, the situation with politics. Don't make it worse by harassing people, by talking about it. What, Susan? Stanley Kunitz, who was part of the United States, was my teacher, and he lived to be 100, but when he was 90, he wrote a line that said, I am not through with my changes. I am not through with my changes is a great thing to say. You know, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who wrote the first books about acknowledging and talking about death and dying, her last book was called Death, The Final Stage of Growth. And I remember seeing that and I thought, give me a break, you know, that <laughs> finally, if you have like an, a, a shelf life date that's c coming up, you could finally relax. You don't have to be like improving yourself every minute. But maybe you do. Maybe you do because I would have in mind that how I exit is going to be important to the people around me. Uh, there was a, a Zen teacher, I, I, it's either A or B, one of two women, I'm not sure which one, who died not so long ago, and they said about her that her final epithet, when Zen teachers, they save up some pithy <laughs> saying for the last minute. <laughs> now, I, I'm very much in awe of it. There are books of last utterances of Zen masters. <laughs> one of my daughters asked me what is your last utterance going to be mom I said you know I'm not a Zen master so I don't know I said to her what do you think I said do you tell me what do you think would be a good last utterance that sums up life uh, I said it should be seven syllables that's a good 
So, so she thought for a minute. She said, well, you could say housework is a waste of time. So, but I thought to myself, maybe it's not. Maybe nothing is a waste of time. That what matters is the attitude with which you do it. We do everything over and over and over again. Brushing your teeth is a waste of time, except keeps your teeth good, and, and they stay into your old age, maybe. But the, the, the point that I want to make specifically is here something happens, something happens to, uh, we get information through our ears or our eyes, someone tells us something, someone, something touches us before we have a, peculiar feeling in our body. Something happens that's unusual. It's, uh-oh, what's that? And it's either pleasant or unpleasant, like the smell of pizza wafting, or a news flash that comes on your cell phone that's scary. Something happens. The mind gets startled. And one of the things that it classically does is it gets startled. And the startle, which is itself unpleasant, comes along with this is pleasant or this is unpleasant like startled by the smell of pizza startled by the bulletin that comes on my cell phone about some news thing that's just happened startled by some weird feeling in the body that I'm confused about what does this mean you get startled and then the the mind either says like the smell of pizza I need more of this oh that's good I'll have that or ah get out of here it's something upsetting that you don't want to see and hear about in the news or what's going on we become you remember there was an old song in the forties I feel well, not even we remember the forties fifties bewitched bothered and bewildered that's what we become we become bewitched by the pizza bothered by the news flash and bewildered by what we can't figure out is going on. And all of them make it worse. The fact that they have the, the bewitched, ah, oh, I need that, that confuses the mind worse. The, oh, I hate that, that really confuses the mind worse. And the confusion and the awareness, oh, oh I don't know what's happening, ah, that makes it worse. And that worse, worse, over the instinctive response is what really is the cause of suffering and causes maladaptive responses. That if you can soothe the mind at that point from, wow, that's a really good smell and I'm really hungry. That's all right, sweetheart, relax, you're going to a lunch meeting. Oh, that's a really terrible uh, report on the news flash. Oh, the end of the world is that. It's not the end of the world till it's the end of the world. Relax, you'll get a fuller, you'll figure out, you'll listen to a fuller bulletin. This, you don't know what's happening, wait a second, you'll figure it out. The uh, definition of equanimity from my friend Gil Fronsdell, which I like better than anything, is equanimity is the ability to say, this is what's happening now. Let's see what happens next. I think that's brilliant. I just think that's so brilliant. Because what happens when something startles and uh, it's like attractive, like the pizza or the catalog that comes with on the cover just the blouse that you need for the 4th of July. Do you get any catalogs with that? Because now they're around. They, ah. Say, just a minute, sweetheart. You know, we'll think about it. Just think about it. Relax. Not to, uh, oh, now I have to go into the pizza shop. Now I have to call for that blouse before they run out. Wait. Or, uh-oh, it's the end. You don't know. Wait. Don't compound what's a naturally arising impulse 
with something that's, that's already confused. Wait for the confusion of the moment to settle down and then see clearly, is it wise to eat the pizza now? Is it, uh, what can I do about this alarming news? What could I do about this? The definition of mindful awareness is the ability as we move along into life, into this moment and the next moment and the next moment, to say, this is what's happening. I see what's, I, I get it, what's happening. This is happening, this is what's a pleasant smell, unpleasant news, confusing. I get it, what's happening. What would be a good thing to do now? How should I respond in this moment? The the thing about watching Carmen, it was such a um, such an extreme example of you see something and you say, I need it, and then railroad your whole life. So I was going to tell you the story of the Buddha sits down on the night of his enlightenment and says, I'm not getting up until I'm enlightened. In the story, he uh, it is a story because it's magic, it's a legend, he sits down, he says, I'm not moving, sits down under a tree, puts his hand, not exactly like either that, with his hand down on the ground this way, presumably saying, I have the right to be here on this earth, I'm not moving until I get it, and sits there all night. In the legend, galloping across the sky come all the forces of the armies of Mara, which are mind confusers. So I don't actually think that what gallops through our mind is, is beings on horses. I think things that frighten us, ideas that frighten us, things that worry us, ideas that we have, come with spears and arrows to disturb us and frighten us and wake us up. And the Buddha is sitting, because he said, I have a right to sit here. And his right is to sit here and not not notice but be calm about it and to radiate out kindness, radiate out, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. They say in the commentary, he radiated out loving kindness. That's the ultimate loving kindness meta commentary. May all beings on all planes be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. Means you're not frightening me. I am wishing you well. I am blessing the world. I, did I tell you I saw a truck on the street last week with a bumper sticker that said, um, I thought it was unusual because trucks don't have this kind of a bumper sticker. It said, God bless the whole world, no exceptions. I thought that's a great bumper sticker. God bless the whole world, no exceptions. That's loving kindness. And so, so, after, so those armies go by and they have spears and arrows and presumably they unleash their spears and arrows but the Buddha is surrounded by a, uh, a uh, impermeable dome. <laughs> I always tell this story thinking about a 50-year-old Colgate toothpaste ad that says Colgate toothpaste puts an invisible shield around your teeth and for, since 50 or 60 years ago, I cannot think of the Buddha with the invisible shield that <laughs> without, without thinking about it. But anyway, here in the invisible shield of loving kindness, they do the spears and arrows and they hit that invisible shield and they fall on the ground like flowers all around it. After that comes galloping in every erotic image that 
might seduce the Buddha into running off and leaving Mikaela and his mother and running off with Carmen. All of the erotic images, um, whatever erotic images come in and seduce the Buddha, but he says, I see you, erotic images, but it's nothing to me. I'm just sitting here beaming out. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. And the erotic images disappear and fall into flowers all around him. And it's said that all of the all of the distractions that uh, Mara, who is the destroyer of clarity of mind, could unleash to the Buddha erotic distractions, frightening distractions, painful distractions, they all are neutralized by his goodwill because it's the ultimate it's the ultimate protection mantra. I, may I be free of enmity and danger. The danger that enmity would cause me. Because enmity means I would make things into enemies. And these are none of these enemies of mine. I wish them all well. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. I think about Mahagosananda not living anymore. That was not quaint. That was not... It just didn't need to be so elaborated. That's really the whole thing. May all be... If I could work on my own heart so that I could say at all times to all beings, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. I don't remember if this had happened last week or this week. But um, maybe I, maybe I told you about it last week something a few things that happened, and maybe maybe I'd seen that uh, bumper sticker about God bless the whole world, no exceptions, and I was feeling in a really good mood, and I was thinking I was I was, I was um, out walking, and I was thinking about teaching and teaching these understandings. I was in such a good mood about you could build yourself a protective heart, and I got back in the house and the phone rang and I picked it up and it was a telemarketer um, which I usually don't spend very much time we just hang up But and I don't think it was a real woman I think it was a recorded announcement about that I had just won five days at a resort in the Caribbean and I noticed I said oh and I noticed that I didn't get annoyed which is what was, which caught my attention because I let her continue on. She was probably a record. I hope she was a record. I hope she, otherwise it's a really terrible job. And she has to, because I began to think about, I wonder who recorded this. I wonder, I hope she's a, not a live woman having to sit every day and say a hundred thousand times a day, you, good news for you, you have just won five days in the Caribbean. And then I was thinking also about Maybe I've, in the past I also get annoyed about these plan to hoodwink people into buying something and then they push you to buy a condominium. And it's a cause for me to get annoyed, to be, to be bothered and annoyed that there are people out there hoodwinking people like I'm in charge of the world. And I thought to myself, and I actually thought to myself, first of all, I hope it's not a real woman having to do that job, whoever it is. 
maybe it's not such a bad thing. Maybe they wouldn't be doing those ads unless some people go and buy a condominium. And maybe they like the condominium. Maybe they don't feel hoodwinked <laughs> into it. Maybe it's a great advertising ploy to set up, you know, that a thousand people hear about the condominium and a hundred people go and try them out. Ten people buy them. They wouldn't continue doing it unless it was, it was viable. And maybe the idea I had about hoodwinking people, maybe it's not hoodwinking people. Maybe I don't have to be in charge of the whole world. Maybe I could keep my mind free of enmity. What a, what an idea. <laughs> May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. We could live this life. That, that picture of the Buddha seeing the monk serene of visage or the image of the Buddha sitting radiating loving kindness and therefore living in a way that he could see clearly. The next day, after that night, it's a mythical night, I'm sure, but after that he is said to have said, I get it now. And what he got and what he went off to tell his companions that he had been practicing meditation with before is, listen, I figured it out, and this is the cause of suffering. The cause of suffering is life is challenging to everybody because we have to deal with loss and pain. And we make it worse than it needs to be by insisting that it should be other, by having trouble really integrating. This is what's happening when anything that's disappointing is happening. When we could meet it as a friend and meet it with compassion. And we could do it differently. We don't have to suffer and have a life that's engaged and passionate about compassion. Because not only will I be subject to loss and pain and sadness, but everybody else is in the same boat as I am. And that my efforts to connect with other people, I'm very much interested in the fact that, oh, it's noon. I'm very much interested in the fact that in the legends, it says that in the lives before the lifetime in which Siddhartha Gautama realized the cause and the end of suffering, that he had spent lifetimes and lifetimes perfecting the uh, virtues of the heart, generosity and um, morality and uh, honesty and energy and patience and... Uh, determination and loving-kindness and equanimity and uh renunciation. Those are nine. The tenth is wisdom, but I think wisdom is really a ringer in there. It It doesn't really fit with the nine others. I think it's a summation of the nine others. But I love the idea that he had to... Uh, Uh, cultivate them all perfectly before he merited the vision and the um, liberation of the heart of the Buddha. That the liberation of the heart doesn't mean that you're not alive anymore. It's the liberation of the heart from needless agony. We have sadness and loss and uh, joy. It really shows up in its fullest way as great joy in everybody's triumphs.
and great pain for everybody's pain and generalized goodwill for everybody else. That's what I think. <laughs> so I'm going to be here. I'm going to be here next week or the week after because I'm traveling, but I will be here the last three weeks in um, July. And I hope you are. And there's a flyer in the back table for an online course that you may be interested in that I hope you'll pick up and take on the way. And uh, if you've just come for one time, I'm glad you came for this one time. If you've come for the first time and you say, oh, I want to be here more, come more. And uh, let's try to say, we'll all say, okay, you, you got the mantra. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. I'll say, ready, set, go, and we'll all say it together, right? Okay? Ready, set, go. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. Hooray, that's a good thing. Let's do it one more time. I'll ring the bell. Look at somebody. Look at somebody. So I say, ready, set, go, and, you, and they'll see you blessing them, and, you, and everybody will see someone saying, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. There you go. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.